Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, bringing you what we call the American view, that is the view of law and government that our founders held to, very simply expressed in the Declaration of Independence. First of all, there is a creator God who's made everything that exists in the universe, including us human beings. Secondly, all of our rights come from him, That's why we refer to them as God-given rights. And thirdly, the only purpose, and we can underline that word only, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and to secure those God-given rights. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And my two wonderful collaborators on this fine Friday morning are Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom. By the way, Mike has a show just before ours on Friday mornings at 7 a.m. Tune in to Mike G. in the morning. Uh, The Law Matters. Well, we're just wrapping up today our series that we've called The Dirty Dozen. Actually, this is the 13th, so it's the Baker's Dozen here. But The Dirty Dozen, that is what we have deemed as the worst Supreme Court cases, the cases that were judged wrongly, that uh, misinterpreted the Constitution or twisted it in some way, shape, or form. And uh, we had 12, we had a perfect dozen, but we realized, wait a minute, <laughs> there's this other case in 1927 that, oh my, we, we can't we can't skip over this one. We must include this one because this, uh, to me, illustrates the, the gargantuan overreach of a view of civil government that's the exact opposite of the view of our founders. Our founders viewed a limited uh, government that is limited by the Constitution. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, re- Jefferson referred to it as the chains of the Constitution, chaining down the government. So like a you know junkyard dog, it can only go so far. When it hits the end of that chain, no further. Uh, and that was their view of a limited government. But this uh, 1927 case, Buck v. Bell, really illustrates the other extreme of government intrusion, intrusion into an area of life that uh, I believe our creator did not give to them, but left to we, the people, uh, to determine. So Buck v. Bell, Phil, go ahead and bring us your thoughts on Buck v. Bell. Oh, yes, relates the facts in this case. Carrie Buck was a feeble-minded woman who was committed to a state mental institution. Her condition had been present in her family for the last three generations. A Virginia law allowed for the sexual sterilization of inmates of institutions to promote the health of the patient, and the welfare of society. Before the procedure could be performed, however, a hearing was required to determine whether or not the operation was a wise thing to do. Oyez continues with the question at issue. Did the Virginia statute, which authorized sterilization, deny Buck the right to due process of the law and the equal protection of the laws as protected by the 14th Amendment? The site then summarizes the outcome of the case. The court found that the statute did not violate the Constitution. Justice Holmes made clear that Buck's challenge was not upon the medical procedure involved, but on the process of the substantive law. Since sterilization could not occur until a proper hearing had occurred, at which the patient and a guardian could be present, and after the Circuit Court of the County and Supreme Court of Appeals had reviewed the case, if so requested by the patient. Only after months of observation could the operation take place. That was enough to satisfy the court that there was no constitutional violation. Citing the best interests of the state, Justice Holmes affirmed the value of a law like Virginia's 
in order to prevent the nation from being swamped with incompetence. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. In assessing this case, we should consider eugenics history. 1927 was perhaps the height of the eugenics movement. The National Air and Space Museum's website describes the major event of the year beyond Babe Ruth's batting 60 home runs for the New York Yankees. On May 21st, 1927, Charles A. Lindbergh completed the first solo nonstop transatlantic flight in history, flying his Spirit of St. Louis from Long Island, New York to Paris, France. Lindbergh was a notable supporter of eugenics. Lindbergh did not influence the Supreme Court's opinion in Buck versus Bell, as the case was decided on May 2nd of that year, but his views were not that far out of the mainstream of, the, of that period. We get a sense for this in NPR's David uh, Biancoli's comment in 2017 about a prior year interview by NPR's Terry Gross of Adam Cohen, author of Imbeciles. This is Biancoli's Opening, uh, opening comment. One of the worst Supreme Court decisions in history, according to our guest journalist Adam Cohen, was the 1927 decision upholding the state's right to forcibly sterilize a person considered unfit to procreate, unfit because they were deemed to be mentally deficient. That decision is part of a larger chapter of American history in which the eugenics movement was be, uh, behind preventing so-called mentally deficient people from procreating through not allowing them to marry, sterilizing them, and segregating them in special colonies. The Nazis borrowed some ideas from Americans, American eugenicists. The eugenics movement also influenced the 1924 Immigration Act, which was designed in part to keep out Italians and Eastern European Jews. Adam Cohen commented, Eugenicists embraced the new genetics that was emerging in their era, and they believed that it could be used to perfect the human race. The word eugenics was actually coined by Francis Galton, who was a half-cousin of Charles Darwin, and it really derived a lot from Darwinian ideas. The eugenicists looked at evolution and survival of the fittest as Darwin was describing it, and they believed we can help nature along if we just plan who reproduces and who doesn't reproduce. By the time eugenics got to America, there were all kinds of categories of people who were deemed to be unfit, including people who were deaf, blind, diseased, poor was a big category, indolent. The feeble-mindedness uh, was really the craze in American eugenics. There was this idea that uh, we were being drowned in a tide of feeble-mindedness, that basically unintelligent people were taking over. Reproducing more quickly than the intelligent people. But it was also a very malleable term that was used to define large categories of people that, again, were disliked by someone who was in the decision making process uh, position. So, women who were thought to be overly interested in sex, licentious, sometimes deemed uh, feeble minded. It was a broad category, and it was very hard to prove at one of these feeble mindedness hearings that you were not feeble-minded. Cohen commented about the eugenic sterilization, how the uh, eugenic sterilizations came about. One of my villains in the book, Harry Lachlan, gave a major address in which he said that to get rid of the, you know, the one-tenth of the country that he was worried about, as many as 15 million people would have to be sterilized. 
So you couldn't put 15 million people in institutions. They understood that it was that it just wasn't economically feasible. So the next idea was eugenic sterilization. And that allowed for a model in which they would take people into institutions, eugenically sterilize them, and then they, were, they could let them go because they were no longer a threat. So that's why eugenic sterilization really became the main model that the eugenicists embraced and that many states enacted laws to allow. We are all familiar with the number of Jewish Holocaust deaths estimated at 6 million. So we get a sense for the magnitude of the eugenicist victim target. Concerning the question of the involuntary sterilizations, Cohen observed that the destruction of individual rights went even further. In many, many cases, the women involved were not told what was being done to them. They might be told that they were having an appendectomy or, you know, they weren't being told that the government has decided that you are unfit to reproduce and we're then going to have surgery on you. So that just compounds the horror of the situation. Cohen commented on the groups who supported and those who opposed forced sterilization. A lot of the progressives of the era, including Teddy Roosevelt, Louis Brandeis, the great progressive justice, and even people associated with the fledgling ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, they supported eugenics. So it was really a situation where there were almost no advocates for the women involved. The Catholic Church was one because they believed that not only did they believe in reproduction, but they believed that people should be judged by their souls, not by these attributes that the eugenicists were so focused on. The only dissenting opinion on the court was a Catholic, Pierce Butler. The majority opinion was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes and was joined by Chief Justice William Howard Taft and Associate Justices Willis Van Devanter, uh, James C. McReynolds, Louis Brandeis, George Sutherland, Edward T. Sanford, and Harlan F. Stone. The New, York's, uh, New York Times observed, it would be hard to imagine a less sympathetic body. Chief Justice William Howard Taft had ties to the eugenics movement, and four of the associate justices constituted a reactionary clique, later nicknamed the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. There is no formal portrait of the Supreme Court for the 1924 term because one of the members refused to sit next to Louis Brandeis, the court's first Jewish member. Several years later, two of the justices would lobby against the nomination of Benjamin Cordoza so as not to afflict the court with another Jew. This was the case against Carrie Buck. The facts of her case endorsed by Dr. John Bell, superintendent of Virginia's Colony for Epileptics, and feeble-minded, went like this. Carrie's mother, Emma Buck, a feeble-minded woman, had been remanded to the colony in 1920, by which time Carrie had been placed in a foster care. There had been no trouble until Carrie's teenage years when she became rebellious and pregnant. Abandoned by her foster parents, Carrie was examined by a judge and two doctors who determined that she was feeble-minded and that her infant daughter, Vivian, most likely was too. Here indeed was an ideal candidate for sterilization. A woman of low intelligence and poor family uh, lineage, oversexed and excessively for, uh, fertile. Now, concerning the, the charge of feeble-mindedness, the New York Times reported, there was no evidence that Emma or Carrie or Vivian was feeble-minded. 
That judgment was first made by local officials who viewed the Bucks as shiftless, immoral women, and Vivian as someone likely to grow up in the same way. In ranking Carrie as the middle grade as a middle grade moron, a category somewhat higher than imbecile, authorities relied on the notoriously flawed Benet Simon intelligence test, which, when administered to more than a million mostly white recruits during World War I, showed 47% of them to be feeble-minded. The New York Times further reported, what wasn't known to the court proved to be even more damaging. Carrie, it turned out, had been a perfectly good student before being removed from school in the sixth grade to do servant's work. And her pregnancy, the real charge against her, had resulted from a rape by a relative of her foster family, which then abandoned Carrie to cover up the crime. The court contained some of the biggest names in the system of justice, and yet it accepted Bell's argument as truth. So what are the consequences of the Supreme Court's opinion? Wikipedia reports, during the Progressive Era, around 1890 to 1920, the United States was the first country to concertedly undertake compulsory sterilization programs for the purpose of eugenics. A relative minority of sterilizations targeting crime took place in prisons and other penal institutions. In the end, over 65,000 individuals were sterilized in 33 states under state compulsory sterilization programs in the United States. In other words, the Buck versus Bell Supreme Court opinion served as a model for the rest of the world. The Wikipedia article describes forced sterilization programs in 17 other nations. The Nazis in Germany were the most notorious followers of the model, according to Wikipedia. By the end of World War II, over 400,000 individuals were sterilized under the German law and its revisions, most within its first four years of being enacted. When the issue of compulsory sterilization was brought up at the Nuremberg trials after the war, Many Nazis defended their actions on the matter by indicating that it was the United States itself from whom they had taken inspiration. The Nazis had many other eugenics-inspired racial policies, including their euthanasia program, in which around 70,000 people were institutionalized uh, with birth defects and were killed. Note the extension of the social engineering model by the Nazis to euthanize, euthanize those considered a burden on society. The next logical step for the Nazis was to exterminate all undesirables, including Jews. So what is the international view of forced uh, sterilization today? The Wikipedia article identifies that the Istanbul, uh, Istanbul uh, Convention prohibits forced sterilization in most European countries, and that's Article 39. Widespread or Systematic forced sterilization has been recognized as a crime against humanity by the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court in the explanatory memorandum. This memorandum defines the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. It does not have universal jurisdiction, with the United States, Russia, and China among the countries to exclude themselves. So what can we learn from Buck versus Bell? Today, the judgment of humanity is that Buck versus Bell ranks with Dred Scott versus Sanford, not just as a bad Supreme Court opinion, 
but also as an immoral opinion on a grand scale. The eight men guilty of that opinion were not judicial lightweights. The big names of the court included Oliver Wendell Holmes, William Howard Taft, Louis Brandeis, and Harlan Stone. How is it that these judicial giants were capable of such gross immorality? Part of the answer comes from the discipline of psychology and was expressed most clearly by Lord Acton in his famous observation, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when you super add the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority, there is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. The first part of this idea is widely known, while the remaining part is generally ignored. That is unfortunate because Acton's idea is not complete without that remaining part. The eight Supreme Court justices who condemned Carrie Buck to sterilization were already powerful. They were not seeking practical power, but were likely to be driven by the need to create a legacy. They wished to be great men and in doing so had inadvertently become bad men, as Acton had cautioned. This is only part of the answer. The other part relies upon sociology, the study of how humans behave in groups. It is flattering for us to think of ourselves as rational human beings, but if one reads Charles Mackey's mid-19th century Extraordinary Popular Delusion and the Madness of Crowds, one comes to the opposite conclusion, that more often than not, we are subject to irrational herd behavior. Mackey described irrational human behavior during a tulip mania, two financial bubbles, witchcraft trials, and a number of other periods of herd irrationality. One could describe the current time as one of extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds as witnessed by the assumption of many that we can choose our own gender. In retrospect, it is easy to recognize the entire eugenics movement as an extraordinary popular delusion during the early 20th century. The eight men in the Supreme Court who passed judgment on Carrie Buck were not immune to that phenomenon. This is a good time to reflect on the concept of democracy, which this nation's founders feared, feared as much as uh, monarchy for its tendency toward political corruption. Where did this idea come from that the majority in a society should dictate to the minority. We can uh, then blame, blame Jean-Jacques Rousseau for his concept of the will of the people as expressed by the majority. The practical consequence of Rousseau's thinking is that the best ideas are subordinated to the thinking of the crowd. Rousseau's ideas played out in the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror. In contrast, the American Revolution was an attempt to establish the primacy of the rule of law based upon the natural law. Carrie Buck would have been protected by the latter, not the former. Humans are preconditioned to seek the uh, supposed security of the herd. The concept of mutual defense is based upon that attribute of human nature. But the herd is capable of stampeding over a cliff as well. We need to be conscious of the simultaneous need for individual critical thinking, particularly critical thinking that is based upon moral principles. The eugenics movement was one of those moments in time when the worst of the herding mentality threatened to take humanity over the cliff. The eight justices of the Supreme Court, representing the best and the brightest of their generation, failed to understand their own limitations as human beings. 
Well, amen to that, Phil. They indeed were uh, dead wrong in in this decision. And as you said, it's like these are often considered some of the brightest and the you know the luminaries, people like Oliver Wendell Holmes. And uh, how could they get this so wrong? The other thing I, I'm fascinated by is the ACLU. Supposedly, the organization committed to civil rights. The ACLU was on the side of sterilization. <laughs> That's a, that's just well maybe that really reveals that they're not all about civil rights as they claim to be they've got another agenda that they've hidden under this cover that they're all about civil rights but you're right the uh, madness of crowds I think has a great deal to do with what was going on in, in that time and I think part of the the problem was there was an exalted view of human rationality and human science to be able to determine who should be able to reproduce. And the idea that, well, we could take control of the reproduction of the human race and we can therefore uh, perfect humanity. That's the whole idea of the eugenics. We're going to make a better human being, just as Adolf Hitler and his ilk were, were all about creating the Aryan race. And, and by the way, the, the, if you look at the philosophy that, that that is all rooted in, it's Friedrich Nietzsche all over. I mean, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote about the Uberman, the Superman, who was the perfect rational human being uh, who, who therefore would never do anything that would be destructive in terms of the overall goal. But then you have to get to, to have that perfect human race. You have to get rid of all of those imperfect humans. By the way, the view of our founders is very clear that all men are sinners, all men are fallen, all men are not to be trusted with power, particularly this kind of power to determine whether someone else has a right to reproduce or not to reproduce. So if we go back to our founders' worldview, it is clear that they believe that rights come from God, they don't come from the government. And so you shouldn't need a license to reproduce, which, by the way, some of these uh, eugenicists have, in our modern time, advocated that there would be parent licensing issued, that you would get a license to drive the car on the road, that you would have to get a license from the government to have a child. In essence, that's exactly what communist China did with their one-child policy. They've now changed it to a a two-child policy, but still, the government is regulating how many children you can have. In this case, with sterilization, they're regulating, can you have any children whatsoever? Well, it's a little bit too too late for Buck. She already had a child, and they were kind of upset that that child was born. So when we put together the the full worldview of these eugenicists, we see that not only was this sterilization, and and Phil, I appreciate you pointing out that 65,000 people were sterilized in our country. Right here in America, the land of the free was sterilizing people right up until, well, I I think it was in 1970s, the last one, I think it was in Virginia uh, that was sterilized before this was outlawed in the state of Virginia and and, uh, a change of direction. But this whole idea of social engineering says that mankind, the elite of mankind, I should say, get to determine for the rest of us who gets to reproduce or who gets to live because certainly this is the exact same motivation, motivating idea of eugenicists that uh, was the origin of Planned Parenthood. And Margaret Sanger, the eugenicists who talk about, talked about human weeds that some people need to be gotten rid of uh, by preventing them from reproducing. So rather than sterilization, which you know became unpopular in people's minds that the government ought to be sterilizing people, they're like, well, no, no, let's just kill the baby once the baby is Uh, in the womb of its mother. And let's figure out a way that we could persuade that woman 
that she's better off if she kills her baby uh, than not. So there's at least some decision making in that in, in that vein of, of Planned Parenthood on the part of the woman who's pregnant uh, as to whether she's going to carry the baby to term or not. Well, clearly with the sterilization program, uh, no decision was to be made on the part of the woman who was being uh, sterilized. And I don't know, I, I didn't hear anything in, in this whole discussion on the sterilization of men, although I know that is done. It is done by castrating males who are sex offenders. And perhaps that's, a, that, that's an appropriate punishment. They have harmed other people in their God-given rights. They have done a heinous crime in, in raping you know, women, or in some cases, raping children. These people, yes, if they are let allowed to live, which uh, there's a question whether a rapist should be allowed to live or not, I think the biblical answer to that is no, they should not. But uh, if they are to live, what should be the punishment? Can there be a severe enough punishment beside death to actually uh, uh, match the crime of raping another human being? Well, uh, the the uh, idea of sterilizing a human being is, is basically saying that the property right you have, and by the way, our founder said property rights extend beyond just a piece of land. They said you have rights, property rights in your person, the idea being that all of the rights that God has given to you are your property, and if somebody violates them, they're violating part of your property rights. So when we ask the question, does a human being have the right to reproduce? Well, the answer is very clear. You go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's repeated uh, numerous times and then elsewhere in Scripture as well. When God created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, brought them together in the first marriage ceremony, that done by God, where he took male and female and joined them together in a one flesh union, one of the commands he gave to them there in the Garden of Eden was be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God's design for humankind was that they would multiply. Husband and wife would have children, and those children would have grandchildren and so on, and the result would be that the earth would become populated. And I think we've done a pretty good job at that. If you look at the 7.5 billion people on the planet today, okay. Uh, but uh, some would say, well, that's too many. Um, uh, I disagree with that because uh, if you've ever traveled across the United States on, on the ground, you can see there's vast stretches of vacant land. Vacant territory, some of its farms, some of its woods, some of its, you know, uh, not uh, very uh, pleasant to live in. But there's enormous amount of land that is still empty in spite of 7.5 billion people on the planet. I don't think that's a problem. But uh, the eugenicists want to take control. And this is the thing that we need to understand about their motivation. It is a motivation to control other human beings. It's a motivation to control the growth of the human population. It's a motivation to control who it is that gets to make these decisions over other people. In other words, who is to be master and who is to be servant. That is ultimately uh, what this is about. So rather than holding to our founder's view of law and government, that uh, God is the one who's created us and God is the one who gives us our rights and the duty, the job of civil government is to protect God-given rights. Here we see in Buck v. Bell the exact opposite. It is human civil government violating what is a God-given right to have children. And where did they get that influence? Well, these, uh, this took place in 1927. This took place during the height, perhaps, of the rejection of our founders' view of law and government. And we need to really understand that that's what this is about. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the author of this opinion, and <laughs> Phil, you uh, captured his statement there, you know, these number of generations of imbeciles is enough. 
you know, uh, we, the elite, have decided no more imbeciles. We're not going to permit them to reproduce. But uh, he was part of the movement to change the whole idea of our legal profession in America. You see, before uh, the invention of law schools, and they were invented because uh, early on in, in the history of our country, no one went to law school. They sat under a practicing attorney. This is how Thomas Jefferson learned the law. This is how all of the founders who were lawyers, they learned the law by sitting under a practicing attorney, clerking for that attorney, uh, you know, serving as a paralegal, so to speak, for, for their, their work. And uh, they were being instructed in the law by reading you know, William Blackstone, his commentaries on the laws of England, reading other uh, assignments given to them by the attorney they were sitting under, and then participating uh, and, and helping that attorney. So they were learning on the job. A type of apprenticeship system was in place before the invention of law schools. Well, when law schools were invented, that began to change dramatically, particularly when Harvard developed its law school and hired its first uh, dean of that law school, Christopher Columbus Langdell. A very interesting character who had never practiced law. He'd studied law, but he'd never practiced in the courtroom. He was not an experienced attorney by any stretch of the imagination. But he was hired by uh, Elliot, the, the president of, uh, of Harvard at the time, with one specific purpose, to take the field of law and to transform and change it from the founder's view of law, that is, law is what the creator has established. When we study law, we're studying the laws of the universe, the laws given by our creators, what our creator, what, what the founders referred to in the Declaration of Independence as the laws of nature and nature's God. So if we're going to study law, we're going to study what it is the creator established as law, which means we got to go back to the original source, which is the word of God. The Bible is the creator's law book, and he has given it to us. And if you look at William Blackstone very carefully, you'll discover it's an exposition of what the Bible has to teach about law. And like the other uh, writers who were influential on our founders, John Locke, his second treatise. And, and if you've read John Locke's second treatise, you find it's filled with scripture as he's making all of his arguments about law and his arguments about civil government based upon the design of the creator of the universe given to us in the Bible as the standard of law. Uh, and similar with uh, Charles, Baron Charles Montesquieu, uh, his spirit of the laws. Again, he's expounding scripture because they understood that's the law book, that's the source of the laws of nature and nature's God. So those three most influential human authors of our founders, William Blackstone, John Locke, and Baron Charles Montesquieu were all expositors of the scripture because they all had the view the Bible is God's law book. And given that God is the creator, if we're going to design a system of government that will work, it must be a system of government that's in tune with the laws of the universe. You know, if you build a building and you don't consider the law of gravity and the other laws of physics, your building's going to collapse. Your building's going to fall over. It's not going to stand up. Therefore, if you're going to build a human civil government, on a system of government that's not founded and uh, in tune with the design of the universe and the laws of the universe, again, that system of government will fail and fail miserably. So what happened under uh, Christopher Columbus Langdell at Harvard, he rejected the founder's view of law. He rejected Blackstone and he, uh, he dove off in a, a new direction that he believed and he claimed was the scientific way in which we discover and study the law. And that way of studying the law is known today as the case law method. And it is because, in his view, 
Law was not what the creator said. No, no, no. Law was what judges said. That is, when judges issued their opinion, when judges put ink to paper, that what they put on paper, that became the standard of law. Not anything that our founders would have recognized as law at all. And so Christopher Columbus Langdell began this positivist movement in, in law that began to say that law is really whatever the judges issue. And so obviously this case, Buck v. Bell, would be uh, established as a precedent. And, uh, you know, any, any debate that might come up in the legislature or any other court case might be debating this whole issue, they would turn to the experts, you know, these ones who establish law. So rather than God establishing the laws of the universe, it's guys like Oliver Wendell Holmes. And the belief that Oliver Wendell Holmes was so smart and uh, noble and so intelligent that he ought to establish the laws that govern our republic. And of course, uh, you know, the uh, dirty dozen, actually 13 bad cases of the Supreme Court that we've looked at clearly show that judges are not smarter than the rest of us. Judges are not wiser than the rest of us. In fact, judges may be behind the eight ball. And consider a you know, case like uh, Nazi Germany. Everything that was done by the Nazis was fully approved by the judges. Nobody was sent to the concentration camp. Nobody was thrown in the gas chamber. Nobody, nothing was done to anyone that was not legal in the system that they had established. And clearly Nuremberg said, no, sorry, there is a law above your law. It's the laws of the universe, the laws of nature, nature's God. And you may hate the laws of nature, nature's God, but sorry, you didn't create the universe, and you can't change the laws of the universe. And that's the essence of what's wrong in this situation right here with uh, Buck v. Bell. God commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply. That is the law of God. Therefore, it is a duty of married couples to have children. And likewise, that uh, those uh, founders, their view of law and government was the opposite of Oliver Wendell Holmes and his ilk here in 1927. But I don't know that we've learned a whole lot from that because it seems like uh, uh, in spite of things like overturning Roe v. Wade with Dobbs, a good decision, that much of what our, our current legal system believes is that if the court makes a ruling, well, that's the end of the story. And precedent says that we can't ever change or challenge. Now, fortunately, that's not the view of everyone. Otherwise, Roe v. Wade would not have been uh, overturned. But uh, Buck v. Bell is a good example of how wrongheaded uh, legal experts may be, in this case, Supreme Court justices who really got it dead wrong. Well, Mike, why don't you bring us your thoughts? I appreciate always a uh, uh, insight of someone who is a practicing attorney because you kind of have a, a sense of what's the ins and outs of what's going on uh, in, in the court system. So what, what are your thoughts on Buck v. Bell? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, when we look at Buck versus Bell, this truly is the dirtiest of the dirty dozen when it comes down to the end result and the rights that are being deprived by our government. From a standpoint of legal analysis, like Phil mentioned briefly during his segment, the Supreme Court was very clear that the ruling was based upon procedural due process rather than the substantive right being deprived. I think that's important to note, but it doesn't change how terrible the end result is. I've mentioned previously on this program that when you're doing legal research and you're looking up cases, there are different services that you can use and when you're looking at a Westlaw case, if a case has been overruled 
or has had negative treatment, there will be a flag at the top of the case. I'm sorry to say that there is no red flag at the top of Buck versus Bell, indicating that it has not been expressly overruled. There is a yellow flag at the top, and it notes that there's an abrogation recognized by a different case, and that is Feger versus Thomas, out of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals originating in Michigan, and that case took place in 1996. But although the case recognized that the decision had been abrogated, we've not seen this expressly overturned. And as a matter of fact, there have been cases after Figure versus Thomas in 1996 where they actually cited Buck versus Bell. It's important to note that uh, in the 40s, there was a separate case where the Supreme Court found that forced sterilization was unconstitutional when being used in the form of punishment. And that was an Eighth Amendment case, but it had nothing to do with whether forced sterilization could take place in the context that's really the, the basis for Buck versus Bell. And we've seen this go on in many different cases. So in 2001, it's a case that referenced Buck versus Bell, and it talked about the procedural requirements rather than whether involuntary forced sterilization is okay in and of itself. And I think that's the problem that shocks people when they read Buck versus Bell. And that the fact is you're looking at whether the person gets their day in court, so to speak, whether there are proper safeguards in place prior to forced sterilization by the government. And a lot of people, I believe, would look at that and say, I don't know that forced sterilization is right in any context, really. Uh, when the government starts to make decisions as to who's fit and who's unfit, that could cause somewhat of a slippery slope. But the 2001 case that it was referenced, this was actually also a federal court of appeals in the Eighth Circuit talking about the procedural safeguards and the procedural due process requirements. Now, in that case, it was a civil case that was brought after the fact of sterilization. Now, the sterilization was compelled, but not as it was in Buck versus Bell. This case is called Vaughn versus Roth. And in this case, you had a social worker who essentially held this woman's children hostage unless she got sterilized. And they were going to continue to keep this woman away from her children. And the social worker coerced her. He said, if you want to see your kids again, if you want to be reunited with your children, then the quickest way to do that is by going through with this sterilization process. And the woman ended up uh, agreeing to go through with it. It's not like they held her down and made her go through the process. But she was really coerced. She was under duress. Uh, they were forcing her to do this in order to see her kids. And the real legal issue that was being analyzed in that case had to do with qualified immunity. And in order to do that analysis, you had to look at whether there was a deprivation of a constitutional right and whether the, the right at the time was clearly established when there's deprivation. So 
in order to determine whether qualified immunity would apply, the court had to go through the constitutionality of this sort of procedure and even cited Buck versus Bell talking about the requirement for procedural due process and that there's an error if they do not follow procedural requirements because there's a, a due process issue here. I don't think that's going to cut the mustard for most of our listeners because I'm not sure then that anybody ultimately would agree that as long as you get your day in court, as long as you have a process and you have a, a neutral fact finder and a, a neutral body where you can present your case, that it's okay if they ultimately rule to force sterilize somebody. That's an issue. Uh, there have been other situations where they've discussed Buck versus Bell and how it was affected by legislation through the Americans with Disabilities Act. And although this Vaughn case is often cited when we're talking about Buck versus Bell, it's not as if there have been no cases in between. So you had uh, cases all along the way, and I don't think this is really on people's radar. I don't think that most people would imagine that you have forced sterilization going on in this country or that it has over the last several decades in these contexts. And I don't think that people would imagine that the courts haven't said that it's not okay because they haven't said it's not okay. They've just said that it's not okay if you don't have due process before it takes place. So having that procedure that those processes in place uh, is really all that's been required by the courts in coming through with this analysis. Now, part of the reason uh, why people might get upset about Buck versus Bell is that the attorney didn't seem to raise any kinds of arguments as to whether this could be done at all, whether due process exists or not, because that seems to not be the issue in front of the court. And if that's the case, uh, why hasn't any other attorney brought that to light? Well, uh, part of the reason might be that there are other fundamental rights that can be stripped of individuals so long as there's due process. Take the Second Amendment, for example. It's an it's a explicit, enumerated, fundamental right, and there's no disputing that. But even in light of it being a fundamental right, people can lose that right so long as there is due process. And we have to keep that in mind that when we put this in other contexts, that people lose rights that are enumerated in the Constitution are protected by our Bill of Rights uh, so long as there are due process procedures in place. This one sort of shocks the conscience because it's your very being, it's the very nature of your being, and the, the right to procreate is being taken and it seems that a lot of people are left puzzled as to how this can happen at the hands of the government so long as there are procedures in place and safeguards to protect somebody's liberty interest. Well, thank you, Mike. Always appreciate your insight. And by the way, folks, remember that Mike has a show just before ours at, at uh, 7 a.m. And that's uh, Mike G. in the morning. 
uh, the law of matters. Phil, what uh, what did you find out about uh, the whole idea of sterilization? Is that still popular in, in some people's thinking that that ought to be? Because after all, there are people that, you know, the elite believe, believe should not reproduce. Well, I think the idea of uh, uh, that kind of, of extreme social engineering uh, uh, being employed only exists in probably small and, and very radical pockets in the United States, certainly, and, and I, I suspect in the rest of the world. However, what we have uh, instead is a much broader uh, vision of social engineering um, and I, I made a reference to one of the most remarkable areas, I, I believe, uh, one of the most extreme, uh, the idea of uh, every individual has a right to select the gender they wish to be. You know, and here, here you see the conflict between natural rights and so-called government-protected rights. Uh, <clears throat> the, the idea, of course, is absolute nonsense. It's contrary to reason. But that doesn't matter whatsoever. It's uh, full steam ahead. You know, uh, uh, we're going to implement these ideas through governmental dictate. So, yeah, there there are areas like that. Uh, certainly, uh, a great deal uh, has occurred in the the so-called educational sector of the uh, the economy, where uh, we have Common Core, for example, which seems to be focused on. Uh, uh, certain ways that society should should think and and behave, as opposed to the basic uh, uh, areas of education, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, and so forth. So no, I I don't believe that the the sterilization idea has any strong adherence today, because so much has been made of it. But on the other hand, if we look at social engineering in its entirety. Mike's sense is a great deal more comprehensive than it was in the, the 1920s. Well, and I would agree and, and might disagree on the sterilization with this one uh, idea. The COVID shot supposedly was going to cure the disease. You know, you're promised by Biden that if you get the shot, you won't get sick. If you get the shot, you won't go to the hospital. If you get the shot, you won't die. All of which were lies because plenty of people, people I've known, got COVID after they got the shot. And other people got very sick and went to the hospital and some were permanently disabled for the rest of their life from the shot. And then we don't know even how many, but there's more than 100,000 and maybe up to 300,000 people in our country alone that have died from the shot. But one of the effects that they're discovering from the shot is the sterilization of women, that women who were pregnant and got the shot lost their babies in, in record numbers. Uh, other women who, uh, once they got the shot, are finding that they're infertile. They're unable to get pregnant. Now, I don't know because uh, we're not told the contents, and that's kind of curious. So you, you're told, you need this product. You need to take this shot. The government supports, you know, you can get all we were told about this. We were never told what was in it. That is, the ingredients were not, oh, that's a trade secret. You can't know what that is. We can't let you in on that that secret. That is reserved for us, you know. And if it really does sterilize women, which there seems to be evidence that some women at least are being sterilized by this, hmm, curious to me that uh, it's being pushed like it is. And I, I think it is another aspect of the social engineering, but it's gone in a very different direction where uh, you're not being forced, although I, I did have people in my congregation who were fired from their job for not getting the shot and, and other people who... Uh, 
for various reasons because of the shutdown were were discriminated against because they did not get the shot. So you weren't exactly forced like in Buck v. Bell, uh, but I think uh, the damage that that shot has done uh, to the reproductive system, not only of women, but we're also hearing reports of damage that it's been doing to uh, men in terms of uh, sterilizing them or reducing uh, their level of fertility. So, you know, I, I think there's some wicked people, in my view, that are behind this, that they have expressed what their goal is. And, and their goal is pretty clearly stated. It was on the Georgia Guidestones before that was blown up and destroyed, I guess it was about a year, a little over a year ago now. But the Georgia Guidestones said that their goal was to reduce human population to half a billion people, 500 million, and they would thereby be in balance with nature, they claimed, and they wanted to keep mankind at a half a billion. Well, if you're going to keep mankind at a half a billion, that means you've got to get rid of 7 billion people. That's a lot of people. And so you got to find ways to do that. Obviously, sterilizing them is one way. Uh, outright killing them, well, yeah, that that's another way. Uh, but uh, I think this whole uh, COVID scam that was pulled on the whole world has been part of that depopulation agenda. And you would think, after things like Buck Bell and, and, and the horror that uh, we saw in the Holocaust of World War II, that we humans would have wisened up and have abandoned the idea that human beings can engineer and socially create the world the way they think it is best. Because, as like you, you quoted Lord Acton, you know, absolute po power corrupts, or, or tends to corrupt. Power tends to corrupt, excuse me, and absolute power uh, corrupts absolutely. So I think uh, this idea of human experimentation, which we see in the uh, uh, the handling of the the COVID uh, nineteen pandemic and the the vaccine, the supposed vaccine that was created uh, for that, I think that if you look at that very closely, uh, what you see is that uh, we have human experimentation on a worldwide scale and. <clears throat> Uh, the idea of human experimentation for medical procedures and drugs and so forth uh, was a hazy ethical area going into the World War II um, era. Uh, and it wasn't until the Nuremberg Tribunals that something came out uh, that said that basically these are crimes against humanity. And now uh, we really have the, the favor. We we gave the, the Nazis the idea of, of eugenics, and now they, they seem to have given us the idea of human experimentation, even though we recognize in 1946 that it was immoral and incorrect. Um, still, we see today with the uh, vaccine programs, a classic example of um, human experimentation. And that's not to say that uh, human trials should not be performed on new procedures and new uh, uh, new drugs. But in in those cases, those uh, trials are are strictly described. The constraints are strictly uh, described. One of the the elements in, in that is the idea that you all anybody who participates in a human trial has to be uh, well informed of the possibilities, the results so far, and so forth, so that they can make an informed decision. Then you do it on a limited basis with volunteers. And then if the results are encouraging, you move on to wider trials and so forth. 
That's not what happened in this case. No, it's not. No. I mean, what we can see is that the the uh, the government um, and to a certain extent the medical profession they were they were complicit because they accepted it with uncritically. Um, the the government was involved in duplicity. We were not told that uh, we were told just the opposite that if we got the shots we would be immune. There was no evidence that those shots would give us any uh, any immunity. And you know there was there was nothing that we were informed about that uh, told us anything about the negatives and the mm-hmm. possibilities. And, and usually these kind of uh, tests are done on animals before they're done on humans. And from what I understand, that this type of shot, the mRNA, where your messenger RNA uh, injection was tested, not this particular vaccine, but the type of uh, shot was tested on animals, and 100% of the animals died. And so they didn't conduct any of these tests on human beings uh, that they t- tested on the animals. And when they wanted to test this new mRNA, the COVID vaccine, they didn't test any animals at all. In other words, the humans got to be the first recipients. And as you said, it really was not ethical at all what they did because there was not informed consent. I saw somebody open the uh, the sheet. When there's ever there's a medication, there's a, a sheet inside that contains here's uh, all the details about this. Here's the test results. And and he showed, and he got this from the pharmacist, mm-hmm. he showed that it was blank. The page was intentionally blank. There was no information at all for the person receiving this mRNA shot to know what risks, what tests have been done. In other words, the human beings were the first test subjects. And uh, this is just unconscionable. And uh, the thing to me that's so sad at this point in time is no one has been hold, held accountable for this. In fact, because it was an experiment, it's experimental, the drug companies, the pharmacy companies that produced these shots have no culpability, no liability in law. Nobody can sue them if they die, if their family member died or if they became severely injured. No lawsuits are permissible at all. The drug companies experimented on human beings without any possible black, uh, blowback in terms of the errors that they created. Well, We are wrapped up here with our dirty dozen, the worst Supreme Court cases as we deem them. And uh, we're going to dive into a new series next week. We invite you to join us next Friday at 8 a.m. We're going to be looking at some of the reports Alexander Hamilton uh, authored that took a change in the direction early on in the history of our country, a change in the direction of our government. So join us next week. We the people, the Constitution Matters, Fridays at 8 a.m.